Our sermon text today is Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. If you're able, would you rise now out of respect for God's word as I read to you Amos 7, verses 1 through 9. This is the inspired word of God. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and it was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it, even here today, even though it may be hard to hear at times. We pray that you would open our eyes to your truth and that you may uh, be pleased to open our hearts to your truth as well. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue now with our series through the book of Amos. Uh, in the first part of the book of Amos, Amos the prophet uh, took an effort to try to dismantle the, the conviction that many had that just because they were, uh, were God's people, it, it didn't matter how they lived, that they could do whatever they wanted and their place was secure. In the second part of the book of Amos, the prophet turned his attention to the people themselves and their sins. And he, he laid bare their guilt before them and before God. And he showed them just how out of step they were with what God demanded of them. <clears throat> and now we begin a third part of this book of Amos. And in it, he turns his attention to judgment. Judgment is the theme that he is focusing on. Judgment is coming. Judgment that is deserved. Judgment that is righteous. It has been on the horizon throughout all of Amos. He's been talking about it, alluding to it, pointing to its coming, warning of it. But now it is coming near. God is, is coming very close in judgment. And he 
is making it clear that this is very, very real. The question is, as J.A. Motyer puts it, is no longer who belongs to the people of God, but when all comes to all, is God prepared to stand by his promises and put a defense around the elect in the day of universal, irresistible, and inescapable wrath? After all, from the earliest days, God had made promises to his people, had he not? He had called Abram out of Ur, and he had promised to make of him a great nation. He had promised to be his God, not only to him, but to his children, to his children's children, to, to make this nation that was greater than the numbers of the, the sand on the seashore, or the stars in the sky. Would he be faithful to these promises? That's what we want to know. We want to know what kind of God is this that Amos talks about in his book. Well, that's the question we're looking at this morning. In the passage that I've just read to you, I think we see a lot about God. We see about the Lord's might. We see about the Lord's mercy. And we see about the Lord's mystery. First, we look at his might. We could have just as easily, I'm sure, have picked up the theme that all three of these begin with the letter M. We could have said his, his magnificence or his majesty, and those probably would have worked just as well. The idea here is we're really talking about kind of a broad spectrum of attributes that God has. Uh, but part of it is his sovereign omnipotence, that he is, he is in control of all things, as Job Put it, Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. If the Lord God decides to do something, it will be done. Part of what we're looking at here is his, his timeless and his eternal nature, right? That, that, and that's part of the reason, right, that he... he is able to accomplish whatever he wants because he, he is outside of time. And we see it here, these three visions that he has given. Verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Verse 7, this is what the Lord, or this is what he showed me. Note, where do these visions of the future come from? It's not just that Amos is innately clairvoyant, right? No, it is that the Lord has shown him what is coming. He has opened his eyes to the future. He has, he has enabled him to see what is coming. And, and it's because God knows the future. Not just does he know the future, he actually controls the future. He holds the future in the palm of his hands. It's what the Westminster Divines referred to as the providence of God. Namely that that it's his completely holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. This is the kind of might the Lord has. We see it throughout Scripture, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. 
Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's what Jesus taught to his disciples after all. You remember in Matthew 10, he told them, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered, he said. Right? There's nothing that happens in all of the universe that is outside of the sovereign will and control and providence of God. There's nothing too small for him to be caring about. Right? He talks about the hairs on your heads or, or the sparrow that falls from the sky. These littlest, tiniest things. But at the same time, there's nothing too large to overcome his will, to o- overpower him. Right? He is sovereignly in control of all things. He cannot be forced to change. In fact, he cannot change. We say that God can do all things, but, but that's really kind of a shorthand. What we really mean is God can do all things that can be done. Right? He, he by his very nature, cannot change. He is, a big seminary word is, is immutable. Right? He, he is not able to change. Right? He, he is what he has always been, and he always will be what he is now. We just sang it a minute ago, didn't we? Right? Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And it's a wonderful promise. We find great comfort in that promise. We find great security in that promise. Right? He's not just some capricious God who might wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and say, ah, never mind. Forget it. Right? You think of the, the idea of the Greek gods of mythology. That's, that's very much how they were, weren't they? They, they just, you know, Zeus is having a bad day today. Look out. Right? God is not like that. He's not blown about by uh, the winds of change. His, his emotions don't get the better of him, as it were. He is what he has always been. The author of Hebrews says it about Jesus Christ, he who is the very image of God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's where our security is. It's in the fact that he does not change. We don't find security in ourselves. Even if we were able to find security in ourselves, which we can't because we are sinful and broken and unrighteous in every way, but even if we were able to achieve some level of righteousness by, by some means, and, and we, were, we were charged with the idea that we needed to hold that righteousness for ourselves, we could have no security and no confidence whatsoever because we change, right? We might fail in the future or we might fail to hold on to that salvation that we've been given. If it's left up to us, we have no security whatsoever. But it is not left up to us. It is left up to the one who can do all things, who never will change. And so we can have security in the Lord by trusting in him who does not change. Psalm 102 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. 
The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Right? It's not about our righteousness that we've accomplished, but, but about his righteousness that he innately has, that he has accomplished, and that he gives to us and clothes us with. And the good thing about it is, is, is that, that God is unchangeable, not because, not because he's just, just you know, stubborn, right? It's not, you know, I, I love a quote I, I saw by a guy named Thomas Winandi. He said, God is unchangeable not because he is inert or static like a rock, but for just the opposite reason. He is so dynamic, so active, that no change can make him more active. You get it? The idea is that he is so powerful, so active, and doing so much that there's nothing that can change his course, right? It's kind of like the idea of, of, think of the power of a billion nuclear explosions, right? And and you're like, well, I'm going to stop that power, right? I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Well, you could not. It would be foolish, right? There's no, nothing that could. It would just blow them all away. And that is how the power of God is. It's unstoppable in this way with such force and such purpose that he cannot be diverted even an inch to either side of what his purposes are such is his might and we see a a picture of that power here in chapter 7 in verse 1 he he says that that the lord god showed him behold he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout behold it was the latter growth after the king's mowings And, and the idea here is there were there was, they'd grow the grass and, and then there'd be a first mowing early in the season where the king would take kind of a tax, right? He'd take the first cutting, the first mowing of that all for himself, for, his, for the army, for, for his purposes. And then there'd be a latter mowing, you know, with the later growth. And, and so what he's saying here is the king's already taken his. And now it's time for the people to be able to use the, use the growings for themselves. But then... The locusts come. Right? Just think how terrible it would be in an agrarian culture to have locusts. I mean, we think of locusts and we're like, oh, they're kind of icky, kind of yucky. Yeah, okay, whatever. But, but it's not just that they're icky bugs, right? This is, this is an agrarian culture that depends upon, upon the crops. And, and the locusts are going to come and they're going to devour the crops. It's going, to, it's going to shut down their entire economy. It, we, we'd probably be better to think of a different kind of bug, like a computer bug, right? It's, it's like the idea that there's a virus that got in somehow, and, and it's going to shut down the internet, right? Even if we're not a person who's really on the internet all the time, we can't help but be affected by that, right? The, the entire banking industry would grind to a halt. The entire communications industry would grind to a halt. Everything is going to ultimately grind to a halt, and, and our... our our whole world would be shut down and impacted by it. That's what we're talking about with these locusts coming. It's that severe a thing. And they're not just showing up coincidentally. Remember, the Lord says, behold, he was forming locusts. It's the same verb that he uses in Genesis 2 when he forms man. Right? It's a very intentional forming that's happening here. Right? He's saying the Lord is sending him. He has the power to do that. He has power over all these things. And then there's a second vision in verse 4, right? The Lord God shows him this judgment by fire. It devoured the great deep and it was eating up the land. Again, this, this cataclysmic type of judgment that comes. Fire's a 
common metaphor of God's judgment in the Bible. And, and the idea is it, it comes and it devours. It's it just a raging inferno just burns through everything and, and, and it can't be stopped. And, and that is how the judgment of God is. It's that extreme. But, but it's not out of control, right? We might think of something like, uh, I said the nuclear bombs, right? I think of the atomic bombs, how they just blew up everything, right? There, it wasn't like, well, here's the bad guy, we'll get him, and, and, and here's the good guy, we'll let him go, right? It's, 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 it's more like, you know, what we have in modern times, like, you know, a smart bomb or something where we can pinpoint things. Perhaps it's more like that. The, the Lord's judgment is, is able to be very pinpoint. But, but here's the problem with that, right? Here's the problem. You say, oh, good. He's only going to get the bad people. I'm all right. Well, let's look at what he says with this third vision. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. What's a plumb line? Well, it's a line that, that measures the straightness, right? It says it was, it was built with a plumb line. It was built straight. It was built right. The Lord says, when I built this, things were good. And now I'm going to hold the plumb line up against it again. I'm setting a plumb line, he says in verse 8, in the midst of my people Israel. And what do you think it will find? Well, you can see what the judgment is that's going to come in verse 9. The high places shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Judgment is coming. Right? Because they will be found wanting. They are no longer in line with the righteous decrees of God. He has been very clear what is demanded. He has been very clear in what they should do. And they have not done it. And he comes straight to the, the, the power sources, right? The, the places where the people who are influential, the people who are in control, the people who have authority, right? The, the, the church, as it were, the government, as it were, right? And, and he says, judgment will fall upon them. And it's not just a temper tantrum. Like I said, God is not swept about by his emotions, right? It is a just, composed, righteous response to the evil of sin. But what we need to remember is that evil is not just in the rich and the powerful, it's in you and me as well. Each of us have that evil endemic to us. We are sinners. And just as much as those others, we deserve that the might of God come against us. Well, this is where it's very good news that this passage isn't just about the might of God also about his mercy now i can imagine you're saying wait a second pete this this is a passage all about judgment right it, it even ends saying he's going to come in judgment well, well where's the mercy in that well let, let's take a quick look there's a couple places it's first off it's just in the delay of judgment right that's what happens we see in verse two right the the, the locusts have finished eating the grass in this vision, and Amos says, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. If, if such a, a judgment were to befall your people, they would be devoured, essentially, is what he's saying here. Oh Lord, please forgive. And, and, and I think sometimes we misunderstand what forgiveness is in our culture. Right? We think that to say, I forgive you, 
is to say you didn't do anything wrong. But that's the exact opposite of what it's saying here. Right? If we forgive somebody, we're not saying, oh, no big deal, you didn't do anything wrong. Right? Because you don't ask for forgiveness unless you've done something wrong. Right? Let, let's say uh, you went away for a trip in the winter, and uh, as you're coming back home, you see uh, online, or maybe you hear it on the radio or somewhere, you find out that in Flint it snowed uh, 18 inches while you were gone. Like, oh my goodness. I'm going to come home and there's going to be 18 inches of snow in my driveway. It's going to be miserable. And as you pull up to your house, you see it is plowed clean. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. This is like, this is incredible. And as you get out of the car, you see your neighbor running over. And he says, hey, I just wanted to apologize. Please forgive me for plowing your driveway. You'd laugh at him, right? <laughs> as you just did. Right? Because, because that's not the kind of thing you'd ask forgiveness for. Right? It's a good thing. We, we ask forgiveness for things that are wrong. Let's say a different story instead. Your, your neighbor comes driving down the street recklessly and plows across your lawn in his car and runs into your car that's in the driveway. Right? And now he comes up to you and says, please forgive me. Now, we might have a hard time forgiving him, but that's, that's the kind of thing that you need forgiveness for. Right? And what is forgiveness but saying what you did was wrong. And there is a cost affixed to it. And forgiveness says, instead of me forcing you to pay the cost that you justly should pay, I will absorb that cost myself. Right? Saying, I will absorb that. I will pay to get my car fixed. Or maybe I'll drive around a car with a big dent in the side of it. How, however, I absorb that cost myself. But saying, I will absorb that cost. And that's what forgiveness is. And, and so Amos asks the Lord for forgiveness here. He says, please forgive. He appeals to the Lord's mercy. And the Lord relents, it says in verse 3. It shall not be, said the Lord. He gets this second vision, and it's more of the same, right? Right? Oh Lord, please cease, he says in verse 5. How can Jacob stand? He is so small, appealing to his mercy once more. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. Right? And we say, well, well what's the Lord doing here? How is this? What, what, what's going on? And, and Psalm 103 gives us a good picture. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Right, his steadfast love, his covenant love to his people. He is, he is merciful and kind, unwavering in loving kindness because we all deserve judgment and we deserve it yesterday. And yet he has not judged us. Why not? Well, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. He gives us every opportunity to repent of our sin, to turn to him and seek his forgiveness, to, to have our relationship restored with him through Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps today is the day he is giving you that opportunity. Perhaps you are where you need to be forgiven for your sins. Perhaps you are needing to turn to the Lord and seek his forgiveness. Today is the day. Turn to him. Find that reconciliation with him. 
And in that, we see a second way in which this passage helps us to see the mercy of God. These verses, like frankly every passage of Scripture, are intended at least in part to point us to Christ Jesus. To point us to Christ Jesus. He who was the one who was truly human in a way that none of us are truly human. Right? He was and is God in the flesh. He is the one who shows us how terribly far we fall short. How we fail miserably and are utterly unable to achieve that which we are supposed to achieve. We are made aware when we look to Jesus of our need for saving, our need for salvation, and we are reminded that the judgment that we truly deserve, the judgment that we absolutely should get, has already fallen upon him at the cross. That he, on his broad shoulders, has taken that punishment upon him. He has offered forgiveness to us. He says, I will bear the cost that you owe. I will give you forgiveness in this way. If you want to know forgiveness, if you want to know the life that you were created for, if you want to experience the uh, what it truly means to live, then trust in Jesus. Know this forgiveness. Be reconciled with your God and your Creator. And know his love. You don't need to pass a seminary exam. That's the wonderful thing about it, right? You, you, don't, need to, you don't need to have everything all figured out. Admittedly, there is some mystery in all of this, right? There's, there's mystery in all of this when, when we're disgusting God. After all, how could we possibly expect our finite minds to comprehend the infinite? There's mystery there. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are God's ways than our ways. There's mystery. Right? There's mystery, we see, in the fact that, that God is sovereign over all things, and yet there's efficacy, there's power in prayer. Right? We saw it here in this passage, didn't we? Verses 3 and 6 said, the Lord relented. If that Wait a second now. Pete, just a minute ago you told me he was unchanging. And now you're telling me he relented. How is it that a God who is unchanging also relented? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, part of it is perhaps that there is a language of accommodation that's being used here. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, he is accommodating himself to our finite minds by allowing us to think as though these aspects of his nature were somehow living in tension and that the one was pulling against the other one, and that God himself wasn't sure of which one was going to come out on top. But, but as Mike Horton says, God always remains infinite and transcendent, even in the finite and imminent forms of his self-revelation. You see, sometimes we're given language that, that allows our very simple minds to understand what he's doing, or at least to approximate an understanding of what he's doing. Sometimes it's that way. We're given a language that helps us to understand his patience and his mercy and his long-suffering love. And we're also 
by it able to see that somehow, mysteriously, in a way that we can't fully explain or even understand, he delights to work through our prayers. It's not that he needs our prayers in some way, but he delights, for some reason, to work through our prayers. He calls us to pray that our prayers might actually accomplish something. Prayer does something. Prayer accomplishes something. Not just in us, which it certainly does, and that ought not to be minimized. That is vitally important as well. But it accomplishes something in the world around us. And when I talk about our prayers, I, I want to be very clear. What I'm talking about with prayers, I'm talking about our communication with God, our, our going before his throne in the name of Christ Jesus, washed clean by the blood of Christ Jesus, prompted by the spirit of Christ Jesus. Right? I, I'm not just talking the kind of thing you see so often on, on Facebook. Oh, I've, I'm having a hard day or I, you know, I'm having surgery today. You know, and people say, well, sending thoughts and prayers your way. Right? Like, well, well, you know, I mean, our language is imprecise, sure, but, but that always kind of bugs me, to be honest with you. We're not sending prayers to that person, right? You're not sending prayers to a person. You're, you're praying to God on behalf of the person. You are, on behalf of that person, going before the infinite, eternal God of the universe. You are, you are approaching his eternal throne, and you are pleading on behalf of that person that he might work that he might be active, that he might accomplish his purposes, and that if it be his will, that he might make things go smoothly for them, that there might be healing, that there might be comfort, that there might be peace. This is the kind of thing you're doing. This isn't just, just sending good vibes your way, whatever that means. Right? Now, now, you might say, Pete, you know, we know what we mean, but, but I think it's important that we use our language clearly because the way we use our words shapes the way we think about things. We need to understand that, that, you know, thoughts and prayers, you know, are not the same thing, right? It's good to think about people. You know, if you're thinking about me and you tell me, hey, Pete, been thinking about you, thank you. I appreciate that. That's encouraging to know that I'm in your thoughts. But that's not the same as storming the gates of heaven <laughs> to come before the eternal God of the universe to plead for me on his, uh, on, plead for me before him, right? Those are different things, right? We're praying people. We should be a praying people. We must be a praying people. And if we are praying people, our prayers will accomplish much because of God. Now you say, well, wait a second. If God's sovereignly in control and unchanging, how do our prayers accomplish things? Charles Hodge has a great answer for this. He says, whether we can harmonize these facts or not is a matter of minor importance. We are constantly called upon to believe that things are without being able to tell how they are or even how they can be. Right? I was thinking about this this week. I, I just recently flew in an airplane. You know what? I don't know. I don't know all the physics that keep that plane in the sky. In fact, my mind tells me there's no way this can actually happen. Right? I mean, I, I understand there's something to do with thrust and wind resistance and lift and all these aerodynamics and these, you know, but, but if you stop and think about it, I mean, this is a giant heavy hunk of metal that's floating up in the sky. understand it and yet you know what I did 
I got on the plane and I flew home, right? And so, so through my flying on the plane, I was able to prove that it was able to do what it claimed it would do. And so it is with God, right? If we, if we trust in God enough to throw ourselves onto him, we don't need to understand everything about him. We just need to trust him. And as we trust him, as we trust him, we will prove him faithful to what he claims to be. There's mystery in that. There's mystery in lots of things. There's mystery in the Trinity, right? Three persons, one God. There's mystery in the dual nature of Christ. He is fully God and fully man. There is mystery in God's sovereignty and man being fully responsible at the same time for his actions. And there is mystery in the fact that God can be completely just and completely merciful. And yet that is exactly who and what he is. And we see that justice and that mercy come together nowhere better than at the cross. At the cross of Christ Jesus. Where God's justice was poured out perfectly. And where his mercy was made known. There's a mystery in that. There's a mystery that Christ has ordained in that. And there's a, another mystery that Christ has ordained. And that is in his meal. The Lord's Supper. The one we're about to partake of. Right? That that somehow, in a mysterious way, he who is always with us is with us in a peculiar way, in a unique way. He tells us to eat his body and drink his blood. Right? We know that they're not physically his body and his blood. We can see as much. And yet, somehow, spiritually, they are indeed present. And we are nourished by them. And so we, we come to the table proclaiming Christ and him crucified. For that is the center of our faith. If you don't trust in Christ and him crucified, if, if you think you can save yourself, if you think there is no God, if you think anything other than Christ is my salvation, then, then you ought not come to the table. You ought not partake of this meal. But for all those who do trust in him, he invites you to come and partake of this mysterious meal that he has given us. Before we do that, we're going to share in a statement of faith. You'll find it printed in your bulletin. It's actually questions one and two of the Heidelberg Catechism. I will ask the questions and then we'll answer them in unison. O Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. I received from the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your mighty, mighty power and your merciful, merciful love. And we thank you, too, for the mystery that exists within your person and within this meal. We pray that you would be with us now and bless us as we come to your table. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ Jesus, who is always with us, is with us in a special way today. He says to all who trust in him, take, eat, this is my body.
There is no means by which we might be cleansed of our sin except for by the blood of Christ Jesus. And he says to all who trust in him, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you are able, would you now join me by rising as we sing together, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. 